You know, I hate it as a pastor when people ask me, so what do you do? I think that's perhaps why pastors made up this myth that uh, wants to avoid that question, the myth that we aren't what we do, that we aren't in our fundamental identity, our work. That, of course, could be qualified. To be sure, our work isn't the sum of our life, the sum total of our life. In fact, work is an expression of a higher identity, that identity that is made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. As Christians, of course, that Imago Dei is restored and and fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that to be a son or daughter of God is to be restored to God as his son and daughter, the Imago Dei, in the image of Christ. But it would be a horrible mistake, then, for us to so casually, with such cliches as we aren't what we do kinds of things, to then divorce what we do uh, from who we are. It would be unbiblical. As we'll see, even as fundamental as to what it means to be the Imago Dei is a vocational mandate. As the royal priesthood of God on earth to have dominion over the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. And an aspect of that work is to enjoy the fruits of one's labor. Today we consider the topic of slavery. As considered in the Bible as one horrific category against the sins of the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. It's in the context of the, of the letter to Timothy by Paul, who is sending Timothy as his emissary to Ephesus. Ephesus, which as we've heard, if you've been here, but if you haven't, very briefly, is, is going through a bit of a moral crisis. Their pastors have, have, uh, don't know what they're talking about, in the words of Paul, when it comes to understanding the relationship of the old covenant law to the new gospel, new covenant gospel. They have, uh, in effect, reduced the moral law in a manner that has rendered a kind of hedonism in Ephesus. So when we turn to the book of Ephesus, the letter of Ephesus, uh, uh, we see how Paul there again devotes two full chapters to the second half of the Decalogue, wanting to go deeper into the law of God that they might understand what that means. But evidently, that letter did not have the the effect it needed to have. And so he's sending Timothy, and here again we find ourselves with Paul summarizing in a very brief word description the the various uh, last half of the Decalogue, last five of the commandments. But he's been doing it in a very provocative way. He'll use a word that, that, that forces Timothy, who has been discipled, who's even wrote that letter with him to Ephesus. So he knows that Timothy knows what he's talking about when he writes these words. Timothy, who would understand how to read the whole of Scripture together and, and, who were, and who had the proper understanding that had been taught him. And so today when we hear this word, as you heard up there a minute ago, uh, literally it would be translated manslaver. Um, it, it just kind of rocks you. Wow. Where did that come from? What does that have to do with the Eighth Commandment? Well, as we'll see, everything. It gets to the very dignity of work and the very dignity of humanity made in the image of God to work. And so, therefore, we're going to look at this passage again, but 
But again, we're going to deal with it in a context that we, of course, have lived in in America, but even in our modern context today as well, uh, where there is enslavement. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and a day set apart of many that we might be wholly devoted to you in our work. Our work, our liturgy today is to worship you and to hear you and We pray now that your spirit would come and enable us to do this holy vocation of worship and now as hearers of your word. Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, the word that Paul uses is, quote, man or human stealing or enslavers in the ESV that you read. We have seen already how Paul references this second half of the Decalogue by the use of these sort of provocative uh, expressions or, or notations, and again, to somehow awaken the Ephesians to the seriousness of their hedonism. It almost certainly refers to slave dealing. Uh, it in, involves all sorts of ways, those selling persons as slaves, including those who are kidnapped persons and selling them. Anything, literally, that relates to this this selling and as property of human beings. But as we'll see it, it goes much deeper than that or more broad than that. But just to make the point, in case you didn't know, you're asking the question, how is that exactly a sin against the eighth uh, commandment, thou shalt not steal? Well, you know, as I've said before, the Ten Commandments are like title page, or title sentences or words, actually. Thou shalt not steal. And that's really like the chapter heading of a whole book. And if you go back and read Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you'll see how then there is this very detailed explanation of what it means to not steal. We've seen before that the the negative command implies all sorts of positive things that we ought to do. Not just the, the sin of omission, but commission, if you will. Vice versa, commission, not just omission. It also will include attitudes that leads up to those sorts of sins. It will deal with with matters of the heart, even. But here, for instance, in Exodus 21, in speaking about the uh, the Eighth Commandment, he says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. I don't know how anyone could have opened their Bible and justified chattel slavery based on that one verse alone. It's just crazy. The blindness. Deuteronomy 24-7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. Notice he calls him a thief. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Joseph, you remember, this was the sin against Joseph, where his brothers basically stole him from their father, and sold them him as property to Egypt. Genesis 37, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brother listen to him. And on it goes. But now I want to turn quickly from that sort of, that's the meaning of the word that Paul uses, and why Paul understands rightly that it's a word that is a category of the Eighth Commandment sin. But what is it really? What's, how does this get developed throughout the scripture? Well, what we find out is that stealing is a sin against the Imago Dei 
and especially the Imago Dei insofar as it is identified as his work, his vocational image of God on earth. That which is royal and priestly in heaven is meant to be conveyed and translated on earth by means of humanity in the image of God. Therefore, at its core of the Imago Dei is the dignity of being made to work. A work as an under-king, as an under-priest of God. Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And right there, he doesn't go into some ontological discussion of rationality or all this other stuff that you might want to go into when we try to distinguish humanity from, say, the animal life. A question that was being raised, of course, in modernity, but... It was not the question here. What does it mean to be made in this image of God after our likeness? It is to let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. That is to bring kingdom order to earth as it is in heaven. That word dominion. It's a kingdom building. A kingdom of God. I won't take the time, but the very poetry of Genesis 1 and 2, or 1 into 2, is the poetry of this kingdom building, this succession of kings all under the kingship of God, humanity being the sort of uh, penultimate king of, of the world. Under humanity is the kings of the sky, the kings of the earth, the kings of the sea, but humanity is that that vice king of God on earth. This dominion to bring kingdom order to the world, he goes on to explain, applies both to men and women. In his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then he goes on in verse 28, right after that, and here's how he begins, to, and here's how it's further understood. So God blessed them, that is to anoint them, with an anointing, Spirit of power to do the work they're called to do. It's, it's like an ordination of them, a commission them. God blessed them and said to them, here's their commission. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. This is a crucial statement. For what you're going to discover is that this language of fruitfulness, particularly if multiply is to expand the kingdom of God, the fruitfulness of it is, of course, to make the kingdom of God flourish. To make it bear fruit. Now, that is a very crucial statement. Because throughout now the law of God, you're going to discover passages that will speak to the issue of that fruit. Anything that would disempower humanity... To have, to work with his own, and you're going to see it over and over, with his own, his or her own hands, which means his own volition, his own power. Take hands not literally as the only kind of work to do is what you can do with your hands necessarily. But, but as work that is empowered from the Imago Dei that is in humanity. This word empowerment, now underline that word. This idea of humanity having power on earth, dominion, to subdue it. To take that away from humanity in any way, shape, or form 
is a sin against humanity and is a violation of the Eighth Commandment because you've stolen from this person that which is most fundamental to his being, his vocation to be in the image of God, a royal priest. Now are you seeing where this is going? Scriptures everywhere will talk about this fruit of your work and the sin of anything that would prevent you from, one, being empowered to work out of your own sense of dominion and, 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 and sovereignty, if you will, under the sovereignty of God. But also that you would not then be enabled to enjoy and partake of that flourishing, that it would be taken away from you. So, for instance, just an example, you'll see how this this goes in a passage in Psalms. Psalms 104, 13 says, From your holy abode you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. That's a passage giving praise to God. His sovereign creation work of, of bearing fruit on earth. And then in, in uh, Psalms uh, 128, almost the same language, but now attributed to humanity. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Now, anything that would violate that commission is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Anything that would, one, again, diminish the dominion of the Imago Dei in every human being, empowered to work as that king, priest, under God on earth, anything that would uh, thwart this person from partaking of the fruit of their labor in a manner that would diminish their dignity in their labor, all of that, Eighth Commandment. So, for instance, in Exodus 23, he's talking about the Feast of the Festival. You shall keep the Feast of the Harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the Feast of the, of, of the Gathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field, the fruit of your labor. Deuteronomy 28, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock in the fruit of your ground. There he's dealing with agricultural images, of course, and, and reproductive images as well. But the idea is this empowerment to bear fruit and to have that fruit. Proverbs 12, from the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of man's hand comes back to him. That's the way the world should be, where a person works and it comes back to them in this prosperity and blessing. Proverbs 28, whoever seeks his land will have plenty of bread. I'm sorry, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits and have plenty of poverty. Now we're beginning, we're going to get into this later, but you're already you're beginning to see all kinds of categories of, of the sin against the Eighth Commandment. Here's laziness. For a person not to, uh, to work uh, is to violate the Eighth Commandment. And that's sin against the dignity of the Imago Dei. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. That's an interesting little phrase, but it's, it's justifying the fact that 
that humanity is rightly motivated to satisfy its needs by working. And it's expected that to work would do so. And not in a way that would in any way, again, diminish the, the empowerment from an individual to do that work. And so there is a dignity you see to work. It's related to the dignity of humanity itself in the image of God. There's a, a, a degree of truth you see that, that human identity is in what they do. Now I say that as your pastor because on the one hand, I don't like it very much because it puts me in a situation that's awkward and all socialization sometimes gets squashed by it. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, interesting. Turn the subject quick. Some of you have vocations where you can say that it's, it's you know, I do this. Oh, that's exciting. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And that's great. But let's be clear. God is no respecter of work. There is no work hierarchy here. It's all leveled out under the Imago Dei. And all of it necessary unless it's sinful. <laughs> well, I thought of Luther's statement, but it'd probably get you off thinking in another way. But Well, I, I just said it, didn't I? So I decided to say, well, Luther had the great statement, you know, all work is, is sacred except uh, that of the, the monk and that of the prostitute. Now, I, I would differ a little bit with this monk statement, but but the point is, is, is he's making the real point. It was one of the points of the Reformation, to be sure. There's a rediscovery of the amazing worth of work. Some people call it the Protestant work ethic, which terribly got abused as it went into modernity and, and liberalism in the, in the sense of the, of the uh, anthropological sense of, of the liberal idea of individualism. But here we have stealing as an offense against the dignity of God and ultimately the dignity of human beings. So now I want to take us through, okay, so let's explore what are those sort of forms of, of, of slavery. Slavery as now we understand it. Any kind of stealing is a form of impoverishment, of enslavement, of, of putting someone in a position where they are no longer empowered. And so to begin... In the days of Paul, again, this is meant to be an expositional sermon, so we'll keep it at that. Uh, what was Paul living in? What was the context for him that day? Well, we understand that in the first century, probably 85 to 90 percent of Rome's population consisted of, now I'm going to give a quote here, slaves. Now, there are many, many, many types of slaves in that, that, that context. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on ethnicity, Although ethnicity could have played a role in it with respect to those slaves that or servants that were were gained by virtue of, say, a military victory, um, most slaves were foreigners defeated in war. Um, in times of hardship, it wasn't um, uncommon for a family to abandon a newborn baby. I think I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. There were then social services or ministries to care for them in the church, but many of those babies, if weren't cared for and put into a diaconal context of the church, would become servants or slaves. A child born to a slave was automatically a slave. An impoverished family, though, could also sell a child as a slave to raise money for the rest of the family, a kind of indentured service. And on and on it goes. People could sell themselves into slavery 
There was all sorts of slavery. Some of it would be what we call chattel slavery or human beings as property being sold. And clearly, by the very word that Paul uses in Timothy, the New Testament is against that. But there are many other forms. And the word slave, remember, it's, it's a broad word. It even speaks to our relationship to God. And so the word slave is often used to describe those who, who would go into some kind of a, a debt repayment system. There were many servants or slaves that, that for whatever reason got into some kind of a debt or squandered something or whatever and in order to then live in that kind of an economy, they would, they would give themselves as a servant to the household to, to pay back their debt for a season. And they would be called slaves in the vernacular of that day. Um, and so it gets pretty complicated. But imagine for a minute that, that there was an emancipation proclamation um, that was being pursued by the church at the time. You would have 85 to 90% of the people out of work. And so often people say, well, where's all those explicit sort of, of, of denouncements? Well, this is where, again, you don't see the New Testament politicize these things. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't speak to them and against all manifestations of sins about them. It's the policy of how those things then get dealt with. And in the church, it was quite clear. For instance, the church would have, uh, you, you hear about the mercy, the, the, the ability of mercy where, where those who would receive that mercy, for instance, those who had lost their husbands or, or spouse, particularly wives in that day in, the, in this patriarchal economy, how they would be required, the church was required by, of course, Timothy, you'll see this later, um, how it is that the church created a fund where these women were expected to work. It was not in an undignifying way. In fact, he makes it very clear that these cannot be idle people. And yet the church took on that burden precisely in order that they might not become then slaves. They had their own benevolence kind of ministry going on with this. And on and on it goes. But that being said, um, there are these types of slaves. Some were in mining. Some were in agriculture. Some were prostitutes or gladiators. Some were tradesmen. Some were what we describe as white collar. Some were what we describe as blue collar. Some is what we call, I mean, it was all over the wall. Some would not want to be uh, emancipated. They wanted their job. It was a, they had, there were certain jobs that were very prestigious that you could be described as a slave. In other words, in a world where there is not a wage labor system like ours, when we read the New Testament, we probably read it unfairly, just to say, if we just immediately import our kind of wage labor system of individualism into a family system economy where wage was not the driving force, but in a household model of economy um, where there was that kind of a, of a of an economic system. And so so just to kind of give you an idea that it's it gets more complicated than well where did Paul just where is the emancipation proclamation by Paul? Doesn't come. Not like that. But it clearly applies the Old Testament laws into the New Covenant context. And so for instance, the Bible speaks very clearly against kidnapping and selling. And anything like that is a sin. Leasing another's labor for a set period of time in return for support and monetary compensation didn't fit into a category of improper slavery. 
But not giving this person their wages or not fulfilling that contract because taking advantage of their poverty, taking advantage of their social weakness, if you will, was a great sin. And on it goes. Um, what was the Christian response then? Well, let's think about Onesimus. Does anybody know about Onesimus? This was a, quote, slave who... There are all kinds of theories about, about this person. There's no evidence. This is a guy that, that was maybe sent, okay, maybe was sent by Philemon to aid and support Paul. So maybe he was on an errand from his, quote, master. We don't know for sure whether he was a, a, uh, uh, a volunteer. It was a voluntary uh, uh, servitude. Like I said, there were many of those. Or whether it was an involuntary servitude. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is for Paul to send back this, quote, runaway slave would have been an explicit rejection of Old Testament law in a direction opposite that of the New Covenant. In other words, it's more restorative and inclusive. Deuteronomy says it this way. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Whoever, Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Maybe that explains what Paul's doing here. He was a good theologian. Maybe when Paul sent back uh, the slave, Omnisimus, uh, to Philemon, maybe he was saying, I would be violating the law to send him back to you if he is an, a contracted involuntarily. I'd be violating the law if I sent him back to you, but, but I want him to go back to you, but I want you to then set him free if he goes back to you. Maybe it was just simply a servant who had been sent. But what's really interesting is that Paul makes it very clear he is not returning a runaway slave to go back into a bondage, if you will. And he exhorts him not to put him in bondage. There it is. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Paul uh, exhorted then Philemon not to receive omnibus as a slave whose status in Roman society meant alienation and dishonor, but rather he was to welcome him as a beloved brother, that, quote, you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, but as a man is a brother in the Lord, end quote. I think that gives you the attitude. And the teachings of the Old Testament law and the New Testament. There's nothing he just said there that's different. In fact, we know that in the church, slaves, no matter your rank, no matter your social status, were considered as equal. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free in the church of Jesus Christ. It was a total, radical, different society of people in the New Covenant. The New Testament presupposes this fundamental equality because of all humans being created in the image of God. There's that image of God thing again. And as equal as sons and daughters. I could just go on and on and on how the New Testament opposed all manifestations of dehumanizing or undignifying uh, and oppression of others. Paul gave household rules, for instance, to Ephesians in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4. And it was not only for Christian slaves and how they are to respect the institution of authority in their lives, but it was also for the, for the, uh, for the slave masters. And I say masters not necessarily as a, let's just call them a boss, if you will. And the way in which they were to treat the, their servants with dignity and, and with, uh, 
and rightly giving them what their labor deserved. You see all of that in the New Testament. Given the spiritual equality then of a slave and a free slave even took on leadership positions in churches, we know. For example, in Romans 16, 7 and 9, there are two slaves, people who are slaves that are we know are officers of the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, that would have just, that was like just crazy in the New Testament context of Rome. And so I want you to be encouraged. I'm speaking to that sort of, there's an elephant in the room that I'm trying to expose here. This kind of assumption that that the Bible, and especially the New Testament, does not decry, does not absolutely condemn all manifestations of forced labor or any kind of a oppressive type of enslavement. There's laws after laws after laws about it. But interestingly, there's nothing directed towards Rome. The politics of slavery. There's all sorts of reasons for that, I think. One, of course, and we've talked about it, is that that to politicize this issue would actually diminish the, the power of the church to reform the institution of slavery. Because, see, in this context, it is the city on a hill reforming as a new polis, as a new society, as a new city within a city, which would have this incredible powerful impact. No one doubts that Christianity led the way in the West for emancipation eventually because of this amazing new created society within Rome that eventually, with all of the right understanding and logic, transformed the institution of slavery. So so here we have the Christian response very briefly. What I want to do finally is just turn to the issue of what is slavery today. Well, clearly, let's just start with chattel slavery. Chattel slavery, or chattel meaning property. There's absolutely zero biblical warrant for any human being ever being viewed as property. And I would hope everybody would just kind of go on, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's like a duh factor, I hope. But then you might be thinking, well, okay, but, you know, that was, I'm living in America, and, you know, that, that was something then. You know, that was something that, that uh, you know, we don't own slaves today, and, and I don't know, whatever you might be thinking. Like, why is that even relevant to us? It's illegal now, right, Pastor? Yeah, it is. At least in that form of it, as you'll see. But don't think for a moment that we don't have that problem now. Ooh, I just didn't do it. I was going to give you some stats. They got lost here. Right here. Where are my stats? Well, let's just talk about sex trafficking. The the, the stats that I was going to give you, I think it's 17, um, which is a huge number, every year in America are involved in what we'd call chattel slavery, whether it's through sex trafficking, whether it's through uh, various, you know, taking young children and, and other places and using them as forced wage labor. In fact, this statistic that came out from UNICEF came out, and you can look it up yourself. It's UNICEF that I got it from. Um, shows that there's never been a time in the history of our world, at least in terms of our being able to keep records, where there's more chattel slavery than there is right now. Think about that. Uh, America is one of the chief engines, the chief 
sources of that, particularly with sex trafficking. And where does that all begin? It begins with pornography. It begins with with loosening up First Amendment rights so that we can speak and, and do and show abusive things on screens. And we vote for it. We're guilty as charged. Thou shalt not steal the human dignity of another man. I think this is very relevant, don't you? Something we need to think about. But then let's take it a little further. So let's go back to the, the, the American context of slavery. It's true, there was an emancipation. But if you've ever heard Martin Luther King Jr. speak of emancipation and then the predicament of particularly the, the African American in America, he makes this case over and over. I was tempted to show you a video of it today, but I didn't, I don't, it didn't take too much time. But, but he makes it over and over again in his day that, that, you know, what might have been even just as bad was the Jim Crow informed restoration laws that prevented those who had been emancipated from ownership. That prevented them, in his words, you know, he talks about the guy on the, on the, on the plane who says, you know, we all have to pull up our boots, you know, pull up our, what is it, by the bootstraps, you know, and the idea of we gotta, we gotta take ourselves, yeah, but you, 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 you've set us free, we had no boots. We had no boots to pull up. And see, that's, that's true. And then what came out of that would be a, 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 a genuine, I'll suspect, a genuine response to Jim Crow informed reconstruction laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where in mercy, we, we, we're, you know, which is understandable, there was a crisis and up comes a welfare state. And I believe mercifully, uh, envisioned. Mercifully, you know, wanting to, to do. But, but what happens if that becomes institutionalized in a manner that impoverishes and enslaves the Imago Dei, the empowerment, the dominion, the, the power to subdue? And we are working with that to this day. It's like in our church. We have a fund. We have a mercy fund. We should have a mercy fund. So should our government, in my humble opinion. But we very carefully want to distinguish between that kind of fund that is an immediate response to an immediate crisis, what would be a crisis intervention, from then substituting that for a chronic intervention. In other words, making it, in other words, always trying to push the envelope. What must we do to restore this person to a situation where they can be empowered? Maybe they need a car so they can go to work. So we focus the crisis fund on a car so that the person can get to work. What we would not do in the church, and it was definitely not done in the first century church, if you read again Timothy about the widow who's on, on need, is we would not dis-enable them uh, to live idly, or and no one wants to be idle, by the way, that I've ever talked to, just to say that. I don't want a motive issue to be here. But there would not, there would be a policy that would ensure that we were empowering them so that they could have the dignity. Now, you, you, you speak of this issue then, so there's just an example. Um, notice then a second form of slavery. It's anything that prevents a person from having access to being self-sufficient. By the way, I'm going to read the larger catechism. If you... If you want to read our church's position on the Eighth Commandment, go look at the, the, the 
Eighth Commandment, uh, larger catechism. Everything I'm saying is included in here. Everything is confessional. But the second form of slavery is anything that prevents a person from having access to being self-sufficient. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, work with your own hands so that you may not be dependent on anyone. I don't know how it says it clearer. And we don't read that now out of this sort of false mercy that says, oh, that's, that's kind of harsh. No. This is the Imago Dei informed policy of the first century church. Let's do what we've got to do that everyone can work with their own hands, their own power, and see the fruit of that power and partake of it. Proverbs 28, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. It's a sin to squander our property, if you will. Proverbs 16, a worker's appetite works for him, his mouth urges him on. Go to the ant, O slugger, consider his ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. Did you hear that? Without having someone take away his dignity, this person, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. This is a principle of the Old New Testament. Empowerment. The principle is this, and you see it in the Old New Testament quoted. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's an empowerment statement, isn't it? Where a person can experience the joy and the power of their decisions. Isaiah 78, he gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. That's the form of a curse in the Bible. To take away the fruit. And to let something else squander it. And so here we discern the modern day relevance of the Jubilee laws. Do you know what the Jubilee laws are in the Old Testament? They were all laws aimed at restoring capital to every generation. So that every generation could be born with the hope of being empowered by the land that perhaps a father had lost being restored to the child. So the child could work it. Isn't that incredible? Boy, I wish they had read that in, in uh, Reconstruction America. Where there was this incredibly empowered human being who, who, who knew how to make crops, but had no land to do it with. How sad. And what would we need to be thinking about as Christians uh, in response to that? A third form of the violation of the Eighth Commandment is, is unequal distribution of the fruit of the labor. Deuteronomy, you shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether other Israelites or aliens who reside in your land in one of your towns. You shall pay them their wages daily before sunset because they are poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise, they might cry to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. The laborer deserves his wages. I mean, over and over and over again. Oh, but we don't do that in America, right? I mean, you can live a decent life by pulling lettuce out of the ground, right? I'm going to say it. Uh, The passage you read in the, the rise of a leisure class in Israel was one of the worst sins of Israel, according to the prophets. 
the more and more that those were living in a lavish, you heard it on ivory beds and all this stuff, on the back of your workers who were living in subsistence conditions was a horrifying sin. It was one of the great sins that led to their their banishment from the land, even, when you go back to the prophets. And it's interesting, in Isaiah, it says, 58, it says, quit pointing the finger at the poor. It's you (laughs) that have impoverished them. So there's a real significant thing going on here. Yeah, violation of the commandment is is an unequal distribution, or I should not say unequal, I don't scratch that word, an unjust distribution of the fruit. If five people are pulling or are working lettuce, three get filthy rich and two get filthy poor, that's a sin against the Eighth Commandment. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteous um, dealings and his upper rooms by injustice wages, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and gives not does not give him his wages. We've already heard Rome, uh, of Amos, an un, or a disproportionate uh, distribution of the harvest. Again, to go the other extreme, idleness is also a sin against the Eighth Commandment. Paul makes this point, let the thief not steal any longer. That's the negative. But then he says, but let him do hard work, working with his own hands what is good, is in order that he might be able to share with those who are in need. The assumption is, in this world, there will be crisis. There will be those who need mercy. And the goal of the Eighth Commandment was to be self-sufficient and then to have some to help those who have a crisis in their life. That's incredible. Not justifying my spending on myself more and more because I worked for it. That's not what Paul says. Well, you worked hard for it. You deserve it. Paul's going, you're getting this all wrong. We live in a, We live in this... This human community where everyone's to be working and all work is to produce fruit of a dignifying way that they might live. Something's wrong with an unjust distribution of wages. Let me just summarize it this way as we come to the table. What is the sins or the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? I'm reading right out of our confession here. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in all contracts and commerce between man to man. It's rendering to everyone his just due. What he's owed. What is he owed, according to Genesis? The fruit of his labor. What, what, how much of the fruit? Enough that this person can live a dignified life. Restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof. That's the Jubilee laws they're talking about. That when you do someone wrong, again, American slavery is a horrific example, you must restore to them, not just stop doing wrong. I'll never forget John Perkins was talking about this principle, and, and he's saying it's like you've got a basketball game. And for the first half, the team blue is cheating and team you know, red is getting their, you know, what's kicked. And and all of a sudden they discover that in the halftime that it's been cheating. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to come back the second half and say, stop cheating, play ball? That'd be pretty bad, wouldn't it? 
You mean you're not going to adjust the score? You mean you're not going to give us every point that they got by cheating so that we can now play fair? Restitution is a huge part of true repentance. You know, if you if you find yourself sinning and somehow inadvertently or, or intentionally uh, denying the Eighth Commandment, and a, whether it's a, a contract that as you look back at it and you say, God, it was just not fair. I took advantage of this person's weak position or, or poor situation or lack of knowledge. Again, I've told the story. I won't again, but... When I was doing some business in Atlanta before I went into ministry, I was trying to run away from ministry, quite frankly. But as I was doing that, I I realized that I had pitched someone and they had made the sell. And I I realized that, you know what, I took advantage of this person because, you know, I didn't really give them the full truth. Or I didn't really, you know, I I didn't say any lies. I didn't do anything wrong. But so I had to go back and say, man, I need to advise you to tear this up. Because really... Uh, you need to take this contract back. And even he said, well, you know, it's my responsibility to know things. I mean, that's my job, right? I mean, it's not my, your job to, to, you know, know what I... No, that's not what the Bible says. And I was convicted. And, 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 and this is the kind of stuff that we do all the time. I do it. If you really think about how we treat each other, giving and lending freely. You know, they, the Bible considers debt as a, as a horrible bondage. And it is. Now, I'm not here to say that the Bible says all debt is wrong. I'm, that's not the point of my making. But it's being aware that there is a kind of injustice to debt where the powerful receive money from the powerless. Avoiding unnecessary lawsuits. On it goes. Preserving the further the wealth and outward estates of others as well as our own. So here we come to the table. <laughs> And uh, we're all sitting here a little bit dumbfounded. Because through all of this, whether indirectly or directly, we find ourselves guilty of violating the Eighth Commandment, don't we? The confession goes on to talk about, as the Scripture does, that, that uh, when we live extraordinarily lavish lives, we have violated the Eighth Commandment. When we, and you could just go through all these attitudes that lead to that as a violation of the Eighth Commandment. So what we got to do as we end this sermon is make sure you hear this in the right context. The reason why the Ephesus pastors and their people had rejected the law because they did not have to go and use the law within the gospel framework. There's basically four ways you can relate to the law today. You can relate to this passage. One, you can be a Pharisee. A Pharisee is going to try to reduce all this. Your your mind was over there, and I know mine does this, so probably some of you do it. My mind over there was disqualifying half of what I just said. Oh, but that wouldn't be true. Oh, no, that wouldn't be true. Oh, no, that wouldn't be true. And we're going to reduce it down to a manageable level. And then I'm going to turn my finger and point to those who break those laws that I find easier to keep. I'm not lazy. That's the Pharisee. The moralist is also not knowing what to do with the law. The moralist will take the law and beat themselves up. And beat themselves up some more. And beat themselves up some more, thinking that they can just self-flagellate and somehow the guilt will go away. It won't. And so the moralist is, has a high view of the law, if you will. If the, if the Pharisee has a very low view of the law, the moralist has a very high view of the law, but they're trying to atone for it themselves. That's not the gospel way to do it. 
Okay, there's one more, the hedonist. That's low law, low grace, or high grace. If one was low law, low grace, one's high law, low grace, this is low law, low grace. And that's the hedonist who just says there are no laws. That was Ephesus. More and more Ephesus. And then there's the gospel, where the law is 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 allowed to clarify, give moral clarity as bright as light upon our world and upon my life. We don't diminish the law. We just we let it reshape our moral vision. But in doing so, we are led to great humiliation and humbleness. So moral clarity leads to moral humbleness. And where we cry out with Paul, Romans 8, who can set me free from this, quote, bondage, enslavement of death, for I am now a slave of my sins. And the answer is, praise be to God through Jesus Christ, who took upon himself the law and fulfilled it for us. He he says in, in Matthew, says, I came not to, to abolish the law, but fulfill it. And then it goes on to describe that not one jot or tittle, not one of those little laws in Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy that's explaining the Ten Commandments, not one of them will not be fulfilled. He's righteous. As a righteous man, he is capable now of suffering your penalty for you. He can do that because he has no penalty owed him he now can take the penalty for you, and he can prevent you from being the moralist. He can take your sins, and he can make atonement for you and restore you to God and to your own humanity and empower you again. And now we are not only reconciled, moral reconciliation, we're now morally restored, whereas a Christian, we pray God's grace that more and more we can follow after the law of God as something that would bring flourishing to my world and flourishing to my life. Amen. Let's come to the cross.